Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Radio Westeros, Episode 75, Aria, Part 1. Spoilers all books! Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere. And I'm Yoke Boy. As many of you know, Radio Westeros began with an analysis of Aya's Mercy chapter from the Winds of Winter. We've come a long way since that analysis, nearly nine years, and have discussed Aya in various formats since. But we haven't returned to a dedicated Aya analysis until now. As a major POV character, Aya was identified by George as one of the five key characters in his original A Song of Ice and Fire outline from 1993, and is the only POV to have chapters in all five books. Long popular with fans, she's also known to be George's wife Paris's favourite character. Aya Stark looms large in A Song of Ice and Fire, and it's high time we return to her story. When discussing Arya Stark, some people might think of a hero's journey, and in fact, we discuss the broad strokes of her journey and how it fits and might continue to fit that basic format in our Heroes episode. But identity, a theme we focused on in our Mercy episode, is also a major theme for Arya, along with a desire to belong, the unfairness of life in general, and gender roles specifically, and a keen desire to learn from the world around her, as shown by her tendencies to explore and her penchant for making friends with her father's men and small folk, and fostered by her status as an outsider or observer in many situations. So, many factors combine to make up the character of Arya Stark, but one thing we will not forget is that at the beginning of A Game of Thrones, Aya is a child of nine. Her cares and concerns are those of a typical child of the nobility, and her responses to external stimuli reflect her youth. As her arc develops, so too does Aya. We can observe the misunderstandings and missteps caused by her youth, at the same time we chronicle her growth in knowledge and maturity, much of which is the result of tragic circumstances into which she is unwillingly thrust. And so Arya's journey is much more than a hero's journey. It's the journey of a lost child, forced to grow up too quickly, ever seeking a way back home, sometimes despairing but never forgetting her lost family, and ultimately never letting go of the desire for vengeance upon those who have hurt her. 
Vengeance is another major theme in Arya's arc that will move front and center as we move deeper into the analysis. Journeys, identity, and vengeance aren't new themes to those of us who read A Song of Ice and Fire closely, but in Arya's arc, we see these themes coalesce with greater clarity than with any other point of view character. This analysis will be in three parts, which will correspond roughly with the stages of Arya's journey, as well as with her geographic locations. In part one, the present episode will journey from Winterfell to King's Landing, and from the capital back into the Riverlands, where hope for a safe return to the north will be foiled by the havoc being waged upon Westeros's heartland by the Lannister Dogs of War. Part 2 will chronicle her wanderings in the Riverlands up to her departure from Westeros, and Part 3 will pick up her story in Bravos. Throughout, we'll keep our eyes on the major themes and events that foreshadow and contribute to Aya's evolution from the wild child whose mother despaired of her to the confident and skilled assassin we saw in the Mercy chapter. Aya's arc is at its heart about lessons learned and growth, and we're looking forward to exploring it at long last, in the depth it deserves. But before we begin today's episode, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons. Radio Estros is supported by patrons, and our sincere thanks go to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Crispy the Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Moltu, John Wargarian, and Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop, house motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. Patrons receive benefits such as early release, shout-outs, and access to patron-exclusive episodes and patron-only channels in our Discord server. You can find out more at patreon.com slash radiowesteros. And now, let's get started with Aya, part one. My name is Arya of House Stark. Arya Stark is nine years old at the beginning of the Game of Thrones, the third of five children and second daughter of Lord Eddard and Lady Catelyn. Her father is the Lord Paramount of the North, de facto ruler of all the lands north of the Neck, while her mother was born a Tully of Riverrun, daughter of the Lord Paramount of the Riverlands. Their union was one of an almost impossibly ancient house of first men origin and a much newer house of Andal descent, only risen to prominence after Aegon Targaryen's conquest of Westeros. Prior to the conquest, when King Torrin Stark knelt to Aegon Targaryen and swore fealty in exchange for the lives of his men and a measure of continued autonomy for his people, House Stark had been the uncontested rulers of the North for nearly a millennium, ruling from Winterfell as kings in the North. But before the lands north of the Neck were consolidated under their rule, members of House Stark fought with rival kings of the region to achieve dominance. As the Kings of Winter, in what would be known to history as the Thousand Years' War, members of House Stark subdued the Barrow Kings, who claimed descent from the First King, the legendary ruler of the First Men who led them across the Broken Arm and into Westeros. 
later regional powers such as the Marsh Kings of the Neck, and finally the Red Kings of House Bolton were defeated or absorbed and the Starks became truly the kings in the north. All of which is to say that, as a member of House Stark, Arya had a very privileged upbringing at Winterfell, one of the oldest and most storied castles in Westeros. Winterfell is relatively centrally located in the interior of the massive north, a region that the then king of the Seven Kingdoms, Robert Baratheon, tells her father in A Game of Thrones, is as big as the other six kingdoms combined. As castles go, it was never planned and has no blueprint. Rather, it grew over centuries, which is why its many towers, courtyards, and keeps might seem a great stone maze to an outsider like Tyrion Lannister. And in fact, Arya's younger brother Bran thinks this about their home. Winterfell was a grey stone labyrinth of walls and towers and courtyards and tunnels spreading out in all directions. In the older parts of the castle, the halls slanted up and down so that you couldn't even be sure what floor you were on. The place had grown over the centuries like some monstrous stone tree, and its branches were gnarled and thick and twisted, its roots sunk deep into the earth. But Bran, and many of those who called the place home, knew its secrets, including the reason for the disorienting lack of continuity of elevation. It says... The builders had not even leveled the earth. There were hills and valleys behind the walls of Winterfell. There was a covered bridge that went from the fourth floor of the bell tower across to the second floor of the rookery. And you could get inside the inner wall by the south gate, climb three floors, and run all the way around Winterfell through a narrow tunnel in the stone, and then come out on ground level at the north gate, with a hundred feet of wall looming over you. In this environment, Arya seems to have experienced a relatively free-range childhood, constantly underfoot amongst her father's men, earning her the nickname Arya Underfoot, always exploring and getting into scrapes and mischief. Much later, her mother would remember this about her. Ned's visitors would oft mistake her for a stable boy if they rode into the yard unannounced. Aya was a trial, it must be said, half a boy, half a wolf pup. Forbid her anything, and it became her heart's desire. She had Ned's long face and brown hair that always looked as though a bird had been nesting in it. I despaired of ever making a lady of her. She collected scabs as other girls collected dolls, and would say anything that came into her head. We know that she played with her brothers and that she was particularly close to her older half-brother, Jon Snow. In A Game of Thrones, she remembers her eldest brother, Rob, leading her, their sister Sansa, and baby brother Bran into the crypts below the castle in an effort to scare the younger children, telling his siblings, There are worse things than spiders and rats. This is where the dead walk. Rob led them right to an open tomb. What happened next speaks volumes about the personalities of the various children and of Arya in particular. It says, when the spirit stepped out of the open tomb, pale white and moaning for blood, Sansa ran, shrieking for the stairs, and Bran wrapped himself around Rob's leg, sobbing. Arya stood her ground and gave the spirit a punch. It was only John, covered in flour. You stupid, she told him. You scared the baby. But John and Rob just laughed and laughed, and pretty soon Bran and Arya were laughing too. 
Fun at Winterfell often involved snow, and it seems Arya wasn't always at odds with her sister. In A Storm of Swords, Sansa remembers a day long past when childhood's innocence still held sway for the Stark siblings, and a glimpse of Arya's true personality, energetic, mischievous and full of life, but also considerate of her older sister, to a degree, it says... She remembered a summer's snow in Winterfell when Arya and Bran had ambushed her as she emerged from the keep one morning. They'd each had a dozen snowballs to hand, and she'd had none. Bran had been perched on the roof of the covered bridge, out of reach, but Sansa had chased Arya through the stables and around the kitchen until both of them were breathless. She might even have caught her, but she'd slipped on some ice. Her sister came back to see if she was hurt. When she said she wasn't, Aya hit her in the face with another snowball, but Sansa grabbed her leg and pulled her down and was rubbing snow in her hair when Jory came along and pulled them apart laughing. So even amongst the sisters who would later be at odds, as we'll see, it seems like early on there was a certain camaraderie. And when she wasn't playing with her siblings, Arya liked getting into mischief around the castle and listening to her father's men tell stories. In A Game of Thrones, it says, Arya had loved nothing better than to sit at her father's table and listen to them talk. She had loved listening to the men on the benches, too, to free riders tough as leather, courtly knights and bold young squires, grizzled old men-at-arms. She used to throw snowballs at them and help them steal pies from the kitchen. Their wives gave her scones and she invented names for their babies and played monsters and maidens and hide the treasure and come into my castle with their children. But sometime before the beginning of A Game of Thrones, Aya began to feel like an outsider in her own family. Perhaps it was when she began having lessons on how to be a proper lady from Septa Mordain, coupled with when she became aware of the reality of her brother John's status in the family. Both of these things might have occurred within the two or so years before the beginning of A Game of Thrones, in other words, when Aya was six or seven. This is the age we can expect that her education would have taken a serious turn, an age where gendered education would have diverged from the relatively gender-neutral nursery years. In the same way that a boy of around seven might be sent to foster with another family to be a page or cupbearer in preparation for becoming a squire, the usual path to knighthood, around this time would likely begin a girl's preparation for her future as a wife and mother, which amongst the nobility meant managing a complex household as well as being an asset to a future husband in numerous courtly and domestic pursuits. And as we'll see, Aya's immediate identification of this reality as unfair prefigures her near future of being mistaken for a boy and then of actively posing as one. Also around this time, her awareness of what a bastard is, paired with her mother's lack of warmth and acceptance for John, probably would have combined to reveal John's outsider status to her. And in one crucial way, this made Arya also feel like an outsider. They had always been close. John had their father's face, as she did. They were the only ones. Rob and Sansa and Bran and even little Rickon all took after the Tullys with easy smiles and fire in their hair. When Arya had been little, she had been afraid that meant that she was a bastard, too. It had been John she had gone to in her fear, and John who had reassured her. 
There's perhaps a certain irony that Aya, not looking like her southern mother and failing to excel at southern pursuits as instructed by Septim Ordain, makes her feel like an outsider in her northern family. For neither Catelyn nor Septim Ordain and her faith are of the north, while Aya most certainly is. Not only does she look like her older half-brother, about whom Tyrion Lannister will say, you have more of the north in you than your brothers, but as we'll see, her father will draw a strong comparison between his second daughter and his long-dead younger sister Lyanna, in both looks and personality. It would seem Aya is very much like her aunt, who is referred to in the text as Wolf Girl, She-Wolf, and the Wolf Maid. In other words, Lyanna Stark was very much of the North. So too, then, is Aya, which makes her isolation and feelings of inferiority both poignant and tragic. As we move into analysis of the final stage of Arya's arc, we'll be keeping the theme of being an outsider and the identity crisis that entails front and center. Of all the Stark siblings, Arya's arc from the outset contains the most clear prefiguring of her future in the story. And so, up next, we'll begin with the moment we're first introduced to Arya Stark of Winterfell. Arya's stitches were crooked again. She frowned down at them with dismay and glanced over to where her sister Sansa sat among the other girls. Sansa's needlework was exquisite. Everyone said so. Sansa's work is as pretty as she is, Septim Ordain told their lady mother once. She has such fine, delicate hands. When Lady Catelyn had asked about Arya, the Septa had sniffed. Arya has the hands of a blacksmith. The first sentences of Arya's first chapter in A Game of Thrones establish her as an outsider, setting up her inferiority complex, her opposure with her sister Sansa, and establishing a theme of unfairness that will follow her throughout A Game of Thrones. Many things seem unfair to Aya, not the least of which are the inevitable comparisons with her older sister, and the way even subordinate members of the Stark household treat her due to her differences, as shown in the quote we just heard, and this follow-up passage. It wasn't fair. Sansa had everything. Sansa was two years older. Maybe by the time Aya had been born, there had been nothing left. Often it felt that way. Sansa could sew and dance and sing. She wrote poetry. She knew how to dress. She played the high harp and the bells. Worse, she was beautiful. Sansa had gotten their mother's fine high cheekbones and the thick auburn hair of the Tullys. Aya took after their lord father. Her hair was a lustreless brown and her face was long and solemn. Jane used to call her Aya Horseface and Nay whenever she came near. It hurt that the one thing Aya could do better than her sister was ride a horse. To begin, let's focus on something that seems fairly superficial, Arya's looks. In the opening passage, Septim Ordain, who is the Stark girl's primary instructor in the womanly arts, states that Sansa's work is as pretty as she is, while Arya is dismissed as having the hands of a blacksmith. 
Setting aside that we'll soon learn that Arya is, in fact, left-handed, which goes a long ways towards explaining those crooked stitches, the implications of the quality of one's needlework being associated with one's appearance aren't that hard to tease out. Add to that the cruel nickname that the steward's daughter teases her with, with the result that the one thing Arya feels she excels at, horseback riding, feels tainted— And it's pretty clear right away what's fueling this child's anxieties. We see those anxieties manifest as a profound feeling of not belonging, of being an outsider. And we soon learn this is probably exacerbated by her close association with her bastard half-brother, which is also established in the first paragraphs of her first chapter. John's word is shown to hold a lot of weight with her when she responds to Sansa's query about what she thinks of Prince Joffrey with John says he looks like a girl. That she follows up with a statement of loyalty, he's our brother, when Sansa dismisses John's opinion as bad because he's a bastard, speaks volumes about a relationship that will get very little actual page time, but will continue to resonate with and motivate both Aya and John for many, many chapters to come. We've already mentioned how the similarity of their looks, the Stark look, strengthened the bond between the siblings and may have also contributed to Arya's feeling like an outsider in her own family. Arya's loyalty to Jon goes beyond their physical similarities, though. They had always been close isn't just about their looks. It's about personalities that fit together hand in glove, Jon mussing up Arya's hair, finishing each other's sentences, and advocating for one another in what was likely many small and mundane ways. When Arya flees the tower room where Septim Ordain is presiding over the young lady's daily needlework practice after having her own work derided by the Septa before the group, she heads off to watch another sort of practice. Arriving at the covered bridge between the Great Keep and Armory, she finds Jon Snow already there, perched in the opening that gives a view of the practice yard below. The castle's boys and the visiting princes were undergoing their own instruction in swordplay, overseen by Sir Roderick Cassell, her father's master-at-arms. John is watching from the sidelines because of his status in the family. Bastards aren't allowed to damage young princes, he tells his little sister, and she thinks, again, how life is unfair. As Arya and John observe Bran and Tommen in the yard, John points out Prince Joffrey's arms. The Baratheon stag and Lannister lion give an equal space on his surcoat, surely a deviation from the norm of Westeros, especially given that Joffrey's Baratheon father is the king. John wonders about the arrogance of making the Lannisters equal to the royal sigil, his keen powers of observation on display, not for the first time, And as we'll see, this is a trait he and Arya share. However, Arya is full of the unfairness of life. Fresh from the needlework lesson, she watches the younger boys doing the one thing she wishes she could do and is sure she'd excel at if she wasn't barred from it due to her sex. And so her reply isn't to join Jon in wondering at the arrogance of the Lannisters, but a protest that women are important too. When John suggests she could use both Stark and Tully sigils in her personal arms, the issue of fairness comes up again. What good are arms if you don't get a sword? John lays out the dichotomy of the injustice succinctly. Girls get the arms, but not the swords. 
Bastards get the swords but not the arms. I did not make the rules, little sister. Later, when she protests for the third time that life isn't fair, his reply in hindsight reads like a simple warning that underpins many of the life lessons Aya is soon to learn. Nothing is fair. In the first two scenes we share with Arya as a point of view, she witnesses two different types of training that castle-born children receive, the gentle pursuits of the females and the martial pursuits of the males, both preparing them for their adult lives and their roles, be they great or small, in the great political game that defines the class system they inhabit. Arya, it would seem, isn't suited for either, being unskilled at the former and deemed too skinny and a girl besides for the latter. More than anything else, we see in this chapter this fact, combined with her conviction that everything is terribly unfair, will lead to the marriage of those two lessons into her own unique brand of needlework that we'll see Arya soon embark upon. At the end of her first chapter, Aya and a direwolf Nymeria, at a side since she left the needlework lesson, reluctantly return to her chamber to face her mother and Scepter Mordain. We don't get another chapter from her viewpoint until much later in King's Landing, but many key events take place in between and are related in other characters' chapters, so we'll have to briefly change our focus from the personal internal perspective to external observation. But first, let's take a moment to look at Aya's relationship with Nymeria. When her brothers discovered a dead direwolf in the snow in the first chapter of A Game of Thrones, it was Jon Snow who made note of the pups corresponding with his true-born siblings. There are five pups, three male, two female. You have five true-born children, three sons, two daughters. The direwolf is the sigil of your house. Your children were meant to have these pups, my lord. And so Arya and each of her siblings was given a pup to raise, with a sixth, runty, albino pup being claimed by John himself. And the first mention of Arya is in Catelyn's first point of view chapter, in which she tells Ned about the children's reactions to the pups. Arya is already in love, and Sansa is charmed and gracious, but Rickon is not quite sure. Of course, that simple statement tells us a lot about the three children, including what might be interpreted as Aya's enthusiasm for new things and adventure. Following Ned's mandates regarding the care of the pups, we see in succeeding chapters that all the Stark children, except perhaps three-year-old Rickon, take the training of their wolves very seriously. By the time we see Aya and Nymeria in her first chapter, she's trained enough to wait patiently for her mistress. It says, Nymeria was waiting for her in the guard's room at the base of the stairs. She bounded to her feet as soon as she caught sight of Aya. Aya grinned. The wolf pup loved her, even if no one else did. They went everywhere together and Nymeria slept in her room at the foot of her bed. If mother had not forbidden it, Aya would gladly have taken the wolf with her to needlework. Let Scepter Mordain complain about her stitches then. Arya's childish wish for her pup to shield her from the Scepter is perhaps an early indication of the importance of the bond between the two and the strength Arya will draw from it. As for the pup's name, it might serve a number of functions, from showing Arya's penchant for adventure stories 
as opposed to what we'll see with Sansa, who adores romances, to perhaps prefiguring elements of her future, a warrior queen of sorts leading her people to safety. But notably, we get a moment of sarcasm rooted in Arya's persistent feelings of inadequacy when she thinks about her choice of name for her pup. That had been a great scandal, too. She's clearly referring to Sansa's reaction, whereas her pretty and prim sister had chosen the very proper name Lady for her pup, Arya chose the name of a foreign queen who Bran thinks of as some old witch queen, who defied Westerosi gender stereotypes and founded a dynasty that to this day continues to hold the female to be of equal importance as the male. A sentiment we saw Arya hotly defending to her brother John on the bridge. Nymeria was there on the bridge too, along with John's ghost, and we saw them interact briefly, Ghost's careful nip of her ear mirroring John's mussing of Aya's hair. Not long after, we see Aya and Nymeria in a John chapter. Aya has trained her wolf to help her pack, as well as to guard her door. It's obvious that Aya is taking her care of the direwolf very seriously and will go into much more depth about the bond she shares with her wolf in later parts of our analysis, but for now we simply wanted to have a basic grounding of that bond. It's not clear whether Arya knew what fate had in store for her in her first point of view chapter. That is, that her father would be accepting King Robert's offer to go to King's Landing as his hand and taking his two daughters and middle son with him. Of course, Bran's fall ultimately changed that plan to a degree, but we never do get to see Arya's reaction to any of it, nor how the change in her mother after Bran's injury affected her. All we know is that Catelyn refused to leave Bran's side and said farewell to her daughters from his sick room. The next time we actually see Aya on page, after the scene on the bridge with Jon, is when the two are saying their own goodbyes in Aya's chamber. Jon is going north to join the Night's Watch, even as she journeys south with her father to King's Landing. But before they part ways, Jon has a gift for his sister. He presents her with a slim sword forged specially for her by Micken, the Winterfell smith. The sword is skinny, according to Aya, and Jon explains it's a Bravo's blade such as those used in the Free Cities. He also offers her a first lesson. Stick them with the pointy end. He further advises her to practice every day when she gets to King's Landing. Until you find a partner, watch how they fight in the yard. Run and ride. Make yourself strong. And a final piece of advice. It seems more like a shared in-joke between the siblings. Don't tell Sansa. The sword also has a name, which we alluded to earlier. Needle is the perfect name for a sword that's skinny like its owner and a sly reference to the dreaded pastime that Arya so wishes to avoid in favor of learning swordplay. The final scene between Jon and Aya comes in his second POV chapter, and long before Aya will gain her second chapter. And yet the moments described in these brief paragraphs will remain with Aya more than almost any other. Her memories of Jon and his advice to her, her association of Needle with both her beloved older brother and a home and family, will continue to affect her throughout her arc. Many months in the future, in another place, another life, 
all the things that Needle represents will flood her memories, not the least of which is her brother's final smile. Like all the best swords, Needle not only has a name, it has a story. But that's all in the future now. In that moment, it was a treasured gift that represented not only her brother's lasting affection for her, like a promise, but also his confidence and acceptance of her. More than anyone else in her life, John understood Aya and believed in her ability to be more than just a well-bred noble lady. Their parting is bittersweet, but based on John's parting words, different roads sometimes lead to the same castle, who knows? It seems that both siblings held on to the idea that they would meet again one day to ease their grief. And so they might, though that's also a discussion for another time. But before we move on to our discussion of the journey south, we want to talk about how Arya's departure from Winterfell might have affected her. Since we don't get her point of view to describe how she feels about leaving her home, we have to rely mostly on speculation. We do, however, get Bran's point of view on leaving in the pages before his fall, which ended up preventing his leaving. And we can guess that for Arya, it might have been the same. A feeling of excitement and anticipation that, at the last, was tempered with anxiety and grief. As Bran goes about trying to say his goodbyes, it says, Yet now that the last day was at hand, suddenly Bran felt lost. Winterfell had been the only home he had ever known. Followed by... All of a sudden, Bran just wanted to sit down and cry. Did Aya cry in her chamber alone? John noticed that she looked like she was going to cry as they said goodbye, and of course nothing would be more natural. We have to add to the nature of her loss that, following Bran's fall, Catelyn didn't seem to take time to be with her daughters who were leaving, possibly for years given the distance, due to her fears of losing the child who was lying comatose in his bed. And so Aya's departure may also have been coloured by some feeling of abandonment. Certainly, in the months to come, Cat will suffer tremendous guilt over her enforced separation from all of her younger children, Aya included. Arya's relationship with her mother at the point in the story we meet her seems to have been characterized by anxiety over her perceived misbehaviors and failures for her part, and a gentle exasperation on Cat's side. The two were so different in all the obvious ways, and Arya so clearly didn't fit the mold of a proper lady that society, and by extension her mother, expected, that it's possible they struggled to connect on some levels. However, there's no doubt that they loved each other. As the story progresses, there will be many, many examples of them yearning to be reunited, sometimes, in Arya's case, tinged with anxiety, but always with the certainty that they belong together. And while it's plain from Arya's physical similarities with Ned and the Stark family that she is very much of the North, there's actually a very compelling case to be made that in matters of personality, Arya is quite similar to the parent she doesn't look like. Consider Kat's childhood at Riverrun as she recalls it later on. It says she had been son as well as daughter to Lord Hoster. Before her brother Edmure was born, and so it seems that for a time Catelyn was considered her father's heir, travelling with him and learning at his side, possibly breaking or exceeding gender norms. And later she spent time playing exactly the sort of way Arya might. 
She remembered the sound of her brother's laughter as he chased her through piles of damp leaves. She remembered making mud pies with Liza, the weight of them, the mud slick and brown between her fingers. And of course, we'll ultimately accumulate quite a list of the ways they're similar in personality. Assertive, resilient, dedicated to family, and fierce about protecting them, driven by a need for justice, and later, vengeance. Much of this we'll reserve for later in our analysis, but for now suffice it to say that while Arya and Kat might not have connected in quite the same way as Sansa and Kat, and while Kat in her grief might not have handled their farewell as she had planned, there can be no doubt about the deep bond they shared. Therefore, Arya's departure from her home was not only a break with the familiar setting of her childhood, but a fracture of the maternal-child bond that should certainly be viewed as a significant loss for a young child. But as Bran's point of view showed, it would also be an adventure, especially for a curious and resilient child like Arya. Sometimes it's fun just to ride along with the wagons and talk to people. And so, under less than optimal conditions, her younger brother severely, perhaps mortally wounded, her favourite elder brother gone to the Night's Watch from which he might not ever return, and her mother taken from her, both physically by distance and perhaps emotionally, through her grief for Bran, Aya began her journey south. With her would be her father, who is kind and gentle with her, but also increasingly distant from his daughters as the weight and demands of his new office settled on him. Her sister Sansa, whom she certainly struggled to connect with, and in place of her mother, Septa Mordain, who we already know lacked warmth and blatantly favoured Sansa, not hesitating to compare Aya unfavourably to her sister when the occasion arose. Is it any wonder, then, that Arya would seek refuge and solace amongst the extended retinue that accompanied them? With her natural curiosity and appetite for adventure, it wouldn't be long before Arya was behaving exactly as her mother might have expected. Half a wolf pup and half a child, looking and acting like a stable boy, and being a true trial to her caregivers. Through Sansa's point of view, we see Arya on the road south, quote, wearing the same riding leathers she had worn yesterday and the day before. When the party arrived at the Trident and had taken up residence at the Inn at the Crossroads, Sansa wanted her sister to get dressed and, most of all, be as excited as she was for spending the day riding with Princess Myrcella in the royal wheelhouse. But Arya was having none of it. She told her sister that she didn't much like the royal children or the queen and that the wheelhouse was dark and stuffy. True to her nature... She just wanted to roam free and explore. In fact, Aya spent much of her time on the road exploring. Crossing the neck, she found, quote, 36 flowers I never saw before, including a purple variety called Poison Kisses that she collected and gave to Ned, which turned out to be akin to poison ivy, giving her a rash on her arms, which Aya then treated with mud to stop the itching. She saw a lizard lion, a haunted watchtower and a herd of wild horses before they reached the trident. And the day of the royal invitation, Aya declared her intention to ride upstream and look for rubies at the ford, rather than join her sister in the wheelhouse. 
As far as who was joining her on these adventures, it says, Sansa knew all about the sorts of people Arya liked to talk to. Squires and grooms and serving girls, old men and naked children, rough-spoken freeriders of uncertain birth. Arya would make friends with anybody. Micah was the worst. A butcher's boy, thirteen and wild, he slept in the meat wagon and smelled of the slaughtering block. Just the sight of him was enough to make Sansa feel sick, but Arya seemed to prefer his company to hers. It was Micah who had shown her the lizard lion and told her to use mud on her rash. And we'll learn that it was also Micah who was responsible for something Sansa noticed about her sister, but was puzzled by. She had bruises on her arms and shoulders too, dark purple welts and faded green and yellow splotches. Sansa had seen them when her sister undressed for sleep. How she had gotten those, only the seven gods knew. Arya, it turns out, had found a partner with whom to play at swords, an attempt to practice as Jon Snow had instructed that was probably not exactly what he expected. She and Micah had been sparring with wooden sticks as well as exploring the countryside. Thus, the bruises, whose cause the reader can infer, if Sansa cannot. Unfortunately for Arya, at least partially as a result of her choice of playmate, she would soon learn the truth of another piece of Jon's advice. Nothing is fair. As much as unfair may have been Arya's feeling about her existence at Winterfell, where she chafed against gender norms and social expectations, at the Trident she'd learned that there is a particular unfairness in the world reserved for powerless individuals, first and foremost the fate of Micah the Butcher's Boy, but to a lesser extent also the fates of the Direwolves, Lady and Nymeria. On the day Sansa and Arya were invited to ride with Myrcella in the royal wheelhouse, Arya elected to go exploring with her friend Micah, searching for rubies from Rhaegar Targaryen's armor at the nearby Ruby Ford where the prince had met his end at the hands of Robert Baratheon and his warhammer. Sansa was left at loose ends when Cersei cancelled their visit due to the unexpected arrival of Sir Barristan Selmy and Lord Renly Baratheon from King's Landing. With Ned and Robert off hunting, Cersei would have to receive the newcomers, and Prince Joffrey was asked to entertain Sansa. Unfortunately for Aya, Sansa was well and truly in the throes of a crush upon the young prince, whose every act seemed to her to be something out of a romantic song. She hadn't seen his conflict with Robert Winterfell, nor heard of his refusal to offer his condolences to his hosts after Bran's fall, and she certainly hadn't heard or lent any credence to Jon Snow's opinion. Joffrey is truly a little shit. And so Sansa agreed to go riding with Joffrey, even though mere moments before she had told Arya she hated riding. All it does is get you soiled and dusty and sore. Sansa and Joffrey spent what sounds like a pleasant enough afternoon, exploring the countryside, indulging in a picnic, at the expense of some local landowners, to be sure, and finally heading to the area near the Ruby Ford to see the battleground where Joffrey's father had won his kingdom. If Sansa had paid attention to Arya's plans for the day, she might not have been surprised when they discovered, upon arriving, quote, a boy and a girl playing at nights. Within moments, Sansa had realized what was happening, and Joffrey's true nature had asserted itself as he stepped in to mercilessly bully the boy whose only offense was to be discovered playing with the hand's daughter, a transgression of social class rather than deed. 
Aya, of course, wouldn't stand by and watch the injustice of a friend being tormented simply for playing an innocent game with her. When Joffrey's bullying escalated to threatening Micah with naked steel, she surged into action, her wooden stick connecting with the back of Joffrey's head and giving Micah time to flee into the woods. Unfortunately, her action enraged the prince who turned his sword on Aya, chasing her to the edge of the wood and cornering her against a tree, screaming obscenities and threatening her with his blade all the while. In his rage, though, he had forgotten about Aya's wolf. With Aya physically threatened and likely feeling afraid, out of nowhere came Nymeria, knocking Joffrey to the ground and tearing at his sword arm before Aya called a command to end it. With Joffrey lying on the ground bleeding, his horse run off during the scuffle, and Sansa sobbing in distress, Arya took to her own horse and vanished into the woods with Nymeria, though not before offering a final humiliation to the princeling as she picked up his sword and stood over him with it. It says, Joffrey made a scared, whimpery sound as he looked up at her. No, he said, don't hurt me, I'll tell my mother. Arya whirled and heaved the sword into the air, putting her whole body into the throw. The blue steel flashed in the sun as the sword spun out over the river. It hit the water and vanished with a splash. Aya would hide in the woods for four days, living on handfuls of berries, before Jory Cassell found her and brought her back to the company, now encamped at the nearby Castle Darry. And there, in an audience before the king and his pitiless queen, Aya learned the truth of Jon Snow's statement, Nothing is fair. When Joffrey naturally lied about what happened and Sansa refused to back up Arya's version of events, Robert decreed that discipline would be left in the hands of the respective fathers. But Cersei, who would have liked to see Arya whipped or otherwise severely punished, demanded her own vengeance. She declared that the wolf must pay for the injuries to her son. The problem was that Arya had returned without her wolf. Much later, she would confess to Ned that she and Jory had chased Nymeria away with rocks, knowing full well what the penalty for her attack on Joffrey would be. But they reckoned without Cersei's cold cruelty. If Nymeria couldn't pay the price, then Sansa's wolf, Lady, would do. And so Ned had his first quarrel with Robert his hand, still a fortnight from King's Landing, when the conflict-averse king refused to gainsay his wife. Though Ned begged his friend, while Sansa wailed and Aya screamed, Robert washed his hands of the situation and Cersei called for Sir Illyn Payne. Salvaging a modicum of humanity to the situation, Ned refused to allow what he termed a butcher to deal with the execution. He sent the girls away, called for his greatsword ice and did the terrible deed himself while Lady was chained up at the castle gatehouse. Afterwards, he ordered Jory Cassell, quote, Choose four men and have them take the body north. Bury her at Winterfell. It was immediately following Lady's execution that Sander Clegane returned to the castle. He, along with numerous other Lannisters, had been searching the area nearby for any sign of Arya and Nymeria. Failing to find either of them, he had come across the unfortunate Micah. Under the impression from Joffrey's version of events that Micah had joined with Arya in beating Joffrey with clubs, he had brutally ridden the boy down and cut him nearly in two. 
There are many lessons to unpack from this incident, and they don't all relate to Arya, though she will be our focus. Whether right or wrong, Sansa failed to support Arya's version of events. Though we saw Sansa defend her sister and even lie to Septimore Dane about her whereabouts early in her chapter at the inn, she lacked the emotional fortitude to stand up in public and name the crown prince a liar. Though she'd soon learn to despise him as much as Arya would, in the here and now she was still betrothed to the boy and no doubt hoped to salvage the idyllic image she had held of him up until the incident with Micah. Sansa would go on to blame Arya, not Joffrey for Lady's death, and the sisters would be at odds for weeks to come, a feud Ned would later call this endless war you two are fighting. Though never close, the aftermath of Micah's and Lady's deaths was the sisters each blaming the other for the losses they suffered. But Arya also learned that her father and his men couldn't or wouldn't always be able to protect her. Her second chapter takes place in King's Landing some weeks later, and in it, it's clear that she doesn't only blame Sansa. Thinking about how much she used to enjoy mingling with her father's household, she realizes everything has changed now. It says, Only that was Winterfell, a world away, and now everything was changed. This was the first time they had supped with the men since arriving in King's Landing. Arya hated it. She hated the sounds of their voices now, the way they laughed, the stories they told. They'd been her friends. She'd felt safe around them. But now she knew that was a lie. They'd let the queen kill Lady. That was horrible enough. But then the hound found Micah. Jane Poole had told Arya that he'd cut him in so many pieces they'd given him back to the butcher in a bag, and at first the poor man had thought it was a pig they'd slaughtered. And no one had raised a voice, or drawn a blade, or anything, not Harwin, who always talked so bold, or Alan, who was going to be a knight, or Jory, who was captain of the guard. Not even her father. Her sense of utter betrayal was profound. Being possessed of that keen sense of fairness, she'd have been intensely aware that action wasn't taken because Micah and Lady simply didn't matter enough. Her friend and her sister's pet were dismissed as equally unworthy of advocacy in an incident that could be seen in many ways as formative. What Arya was struggling with, aside from her grief over the loss of her friend Micah and the fate of Nymeria, lost in the trident, as well as her feelings of guilt over both Micah's and Lady's deaths, was the realisation that nothing is fair was a far larger statement than her being forced to endure needlework lessons, or even John being excluded from swordplay with a royal prince. Nine years old is very young to learn a lesson that many adults never learn, and the feeling of isolation and desolation that came along with that was no less profound than her grief. At Darry, Arya also learned to hate and fear all the Lannisters. In King's Landing, she would tell her father, I hate them, the Hound and the Queen and the King and Prince Joffrey, I hate all of them. Joffrey lied, it wasn't the way he said. I hate Sansa, too. She did remember. She just lied so Joffrey would like her. While lumping Sansa in with the Lannisters might be unfair, her perception of why Sansa lied was remarkably acute for a nine-year-old girl, far more keen than Sansa's own confused justifications of her own feelings for Joffrey at the time. 
Altogether, Aya was dealing with a triad of complex cognitive developments, the simultaneous realizations that adults, especially her father, are not infallible, that sometimes she would have no one to depend on but herself, and that the society she inhabited did not treat all people equally, and in fact that her own privileged position in it could unintentionally put people she valued at a disadvantage. All of these lessons, from loss of trust to self-reliance, would unfortunately serve her well in the near future. And now, at the midway point of the episode, it's time for us to say thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks so much to Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka and the Company of the Cats, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabeth the Unfrozen, David, Dean, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, The Sithorian, Sally, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Tim, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everything would be better once she was home again, safe behind Winterfell's grey granite walls. As best as we can figure, I would spend about four months in King's Landing. What many might not realise is that more than half of that time was spent existing in the shadows after Cersei's coup. Before that, though, she would experience several very important growth events, the first of which was a conversation with her father not long after they arrived at the Red Keep. At a dinner in the Red Keep's small hall with the Hans household, Arya, in the depths of sadness over recent events, decided that she couldn't bear to remain at table with the people who, in her mind, had failed her so badly, Sansa, Jory, Alan, and Harwin among them, and she took off, incurring her Septa's wrath yet again. Barricaded in her room, she observed the courtyard below her and dreamed of escaping the capital. It says, If only she could climb like Bran, she thought. She would go out the window and down the tower, run away from this horrible place, away from Sansa and Septa Mordain and Prince Joffrey, all of them. Steal some food from the kitchen, take Needle and her good boots and a warm cloak, She'd find Nymeria in the wild woods below the trident, and together they'd return to Winterfell, 
or run to John Snow at the wall. She found herself wishing that John was here with her now. Then maybe she wouldn't feel so alone. Little did she know that within a matter of weeks, that daydream would become reality as she'd find herself fleeing the Red Keep for a reason far more serious than being angry with her family. But first, she had to face her father. Ned arrived at the door as she was contemplating freedom with needle in her hand. Her secret was out, although she stubbornly refused to betray her brother as the source of the sword. The conversation that ensued is perhaps the most meaningful Arya would have with her father, certainly of those we see on page. The sword, and the obvious rebelliousness that led to her possessing one, inspired a comparison that startled Arya in more ways than one. Here's the passage. Ah, Arya, you have a wildness in you, child. The wolf blood, my father used to call it. Lyanna had a touch of it, and my brother Brandon more than a touch. It brought them both to an early grave. Arya heard the sadness in his voice. He did not often speak of his father or of the brother and sister who had died before she was born. Lyanna might have carried a sword if my lord father had allowed it. You remind me of her sometimes. You even look like her. In the moment, Arya's astonishment at being compared to Lyanna, her father's long-dead but beautiful younger sister, overshadowed the sadness and worry that tinged her father's words beautiful and willful and dead before her time, could read as a warning from Ned to his daughter even without the words that followed. But suddenly Aya's grief and guilt overcame everything else. I asked Micah to practice with me. I asked him, she cried. It was my fault. It was me. Ned was clear to his daughter that the blame for what happened at the Trident did not lie with her, telling her, Grieve for your friend, but never blame yourself. You did not kill the butcher's boy. That murder lies at the hound's door, him and that cruel woman he serves. When Arya confessed that her hatred for the Lannisters included her septa and her sister, Ned decided the time had come to give his youngest daughter a political lesson of sorts. In the simplest of terms, he reminded her of their new environment— of the cares of politics and the recent tragedies that had afflicted their family, tying all of it to the stark words, winter is coming, and the sigil of their house, the direwolf. Ned's words that evening would stick with Aya in all the long months that would follow. Part advice, part predictive text, they speak not only to Aya's arc and his own, but to those of all the other members of House Stark. They're all so poignant and lovely and deeply affecting to Aya in that moment. He says, Let me tell you something about wolves, child. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Summer is the time for squabbles. In winter, we must protect one another, keep each other warm, share our strengths. So if you must hate Aya, hate those who would truly do us harm. Septa Mordain is a good woman, and Sansa, Sansa is your sister. You might be as different as the sun and the moon, but the same blood flows through both your hearts. You need her as she needs you, and I need both of you, gods help me. I do not mean to frighten you, but neither will I lie to you. We have come to a dark, dangerous place, child. This is not Winterfell. We have enemies who mean us ill. We cannot fight a war among ourselves. 
This willfulness of yours, the running off, the angry words, the disobedience. At home, these were only the summer games of a child. Here and now, with winter soon upon us, that is a different matter. It is time to begin growing up. Arya's promises that she didn't truly hate her sister, that she could be strong, quote, as strong as Rob, and her father's acceptance of them, led to the next event that would shape her remaining days in the Red Keep. It says, three days later, at midday, her father's steward, Veon Poole, sent Arya to the small hall. The trestle tables had been dismantled and the benches shoved against the walls. The hall seemed empty until an unfamiliar voice said, You are late, boy. While Catelyn would later comment that Arya was often mistaken for a stable boy at Winterfell, this is the moment when Arya truly stepped outside of her expected gender role for the first time. Whereas previously her swordplay had been just that, child's play, often tinged with rebellion, now she would have time to explore that aspect of her personality through lessons officially sanctioned by her father with Sirio Farrell, the former first sword of Bravos. Not that Ned could have predicted the real danger his daughter would soon find herself in, nor the use to which she would soon put her dancing lessons, which essentially gave her the tools she would need to survive. Rather, his intent was teaching her discipline and giving her something to focus on. Ned hoped to keep his daughter from further rebellions which could endanger her in ways she might never have dreamed of. And so she spent her days learning not just swordplay in the Bravosi style of water dancing from Sirio Farrell, but a host of other lessons, ranging from a seemingly unending list of metaphoric aphorisms. Calm is still water, swift as a deer, fear cuts deeper than swords, etc. To strength and conditioning exercises, such as standing on one leg for hours, doing spins and backflips, walking the passages of the Red Keep blind with her eyes covered by a scarf, and chasing and capturing stray cats. Viewed as being part of a loose hero's journey, this stage is very much about Arya accumulating skills from her first mentor, which would prove important to her moving on to the next stage of her arc. It was hearing about catching cats that made Ned finally voice his doubts, asking Arya if she'd prefer to take lessons from Jory or even Sir Barristan. But Arya wanted only Sirio, and so she continued with her unusual physical and mental training regimen, chasing cats and being generally as free-range as she'd been at Winterfell. During one such episode, she ran afoul of Tommen and Marcella and their scepter. Mistaking her for an urchin boy, the scepter unsuccessfully sent a Lannister guard to capture her. Being mistaken for a boy and eluding the guard both prefigure things that would soon loom large in her arc. But it was after escaping from the guard that Arya found herself in the darkness below the Red Keep, where she would discover not only the stash of Targaryen dragon skulls and a secret exit from the castle, but a conversation that was taking place between two men who had no idea they were being overheard. Readers will soon come to realize that one of the men is Varys, the Red Keep's master of whispers, and that he is undoubtedly the one about whom it says, it seemed to Arya there was something oddly familiar about him. 
This ability to see beyond the obvious, to see with all her senses, is both part and parcel of her lessons from Sirio and a look into her future when that will become a major part of her instruction in an art her present is laying the foundation for. Aya had little understanding of the conversation the men were having. Rather, her presence in that dark chamber serves as a fly-in-the-wall point of view to give the reader information they could never have received otherwise given the POV structure of the novels. As Varys and Illyrio discussed their plot to destabilise Westeros, Aya had a difficult time following their conversation. The elements she would recall, monsters her characterization of the dragon skulls, killing the hand, a bastard and a book, the wolf and the lion, juggling, a mama's farce, and a pregnant princess, all combined to lead her father to the wrong conclusion when she later told him about her experience. Yeah, that's true. Ned assumes that Arya had somehow stumbled upon some mummers having a conversation, but his very next chapter begins with Robert raging about Princess Daenerys Targaryen's pregnancy during a council meeting, one of many instances in A Game of Thrones where the reader is placed several steps ahead of Eddard Stark not only heightening our sense of frustration with him, but adding dramatic tension so that when the worst finally happens, it's on a foundation of misunderstandings and missteps that the reader has already chronicled. In Arya's POV, as Lady Gwyn said, her father dismissed the two men she heard as likely being mummers, and she is confused, and then forgot it entirely when a representative of the Night's Watch arrived at his solar, requesting an audience. Euron mistook Aya for a boy, saying to Ned, this must be your son, he has your look, before being corrected and introduced to her. Aya also immediately forgot her experience in the cellars in her excitement to ask for news of her brothers, Bran and Rob at Winterfell, and John at the Wall. Ned wonders if Benjen had sent a message and doesn't seem to notice when Euron refers to his brother in the past tense. You might say as Benjen Stark is why we're talking, though. His blood ran black. Made him my brother as much as yours. It's for his sake I'm come. Rode hard I did, near killed my horse the way I drove her, but I left the others well behind. Other than a brief reassurance that the snowboy was well enough when I left the wall, Arya didn't get the satisfaction of any further news, as Yorin made it clear that his message was for Ned alone. And so she was led off to bed, and her father evidently forgot the escapade in the cellars of the Red Keep and his threat to stop her lessons with Sirio, because the next time we get Arya's point of view, she's having one last lesson with Sirio before she and Sansa are placed on a ship bound for White Harbor. That's right, but a great many things happened in between Euron's visit and that final day, many of them as a direct result of the news Euron bought, the rest more or less all related to the conversation Aya had overheard in the cellars. Euron had brought Ned news of Catelyn seizing Tyrion Lannister at the Inn at the Crossroads, so near the location of the recent drama with Aya, Sansa and Joffrey. His hard riding meant Ned knew before Robert and Cersei did, but only just. 
The next day, Ned quarreled with Robert over the plan to assassinate the pregnant Daenerys Targaryen and resigned his post as hand. That was when he decided to remove his daughters from King's Landing as soon as possible for their own safety. But a last-minute excursion with Peter Baelish led Ned and his men into an ambush in the streets led by Jamie Lannister and 20 Lannister soldiers. With Will, Heward, and Jory Cassell dead, and Ned's leg broken below the knee, it would be nearly a week before he regained consciousness. When he did, his first concern was for his daughters. Alan reassures him that they are safe. They have been with you every day, my lord. Sansa prays quietly. But Arya, she has not said a word since they brought you back. She is a fierce little thing, my lord. I have never seen such anger in a girl. As much as Ned desperately wanted to get his daughters away as soon as possible, the outcome of the ambush and his injury was that Robert refused to allow his resignation, but he also refused to listen to Ned's explanations. Instead, he went hunting, leaving Ned in charge for nearly three weeks. During this time, Arya continued her lessons with Sirio, who, it had been decided, would accompany them north. Also during this time, Ned at last discovered the explanations he had been seeking so long, that Cersei and Jamie Lannister had been engaging in an incestuous affair for years, and that all three of her children were Jamie's, not Robert's. Knowing that he must tell Robert and how his old friend would react, Ned chose to warn Cersei, assuming she would flee for her life once she realized her secret had been uncovered. Instead, Cersei put a long-laid plan into action, one she had referenced all those months ago at Winterfell in the conversation Bran overheard before his fall. Robert's life would be forfeit for Ned's attempt at mercy, and all too soon he himself and his daughters would also be in mortal danger. Robert returned from his hunting, mortally wounded, the day before Sansa and Arya were to depart the city. The morning after the king's death, as Arya was having the last lesson with Sirio before their expected departure, Cersei staged a coup in the throne room and Ned was taken captive, his guards slaughtered by the gold cloaks he thought would support him. Arya was still with Sirio when Meryn Trant of the Kingsguard came to take her. Sirio, as a Bravosi, was well acquainted with the consequences of the death of the local ruler. The knives come out, as Arya will be told many months in the future, in a different life. Therefore, he refused to allow Arya to leave with Sir Meryn and the Lannister soldiers who accompanied him. It says, Sirio Farrell stepped between them, tapping his wooden sword lightly against his boot. You will be stopping there. Are you men or dogs that you would threaten a child? Arya observed Sirio taking out five red cloaks with his wooden practice sword, but when he had to face the fully armoured Merin Trant with a broken wooden stick, she finally obeyed Sirio's calm instructions and fled. As she made her way through the Red Keep, she realised that something had gone horribly wrong. There were sounds of fighting coming from the Tower of the Hand and a dead guardsman in a grey cloak at its entrance. Using the skills she had learned from Sirio, she made her way to the stables, thinking to get a horse and ride away. En route, it says, she pretended she was chasing cats, except she was the cat now, and if they caught her, they would kill her. In the stables, the seriousness of the situation became more evident. 
she found Holland, her father's master of horse, clinging to life just long enough to give her a warning. Arya Underfoot, he whispered, you must warn your, your lord father. And there were several more bodies inside, as well as the trunks that had been packed and brought down, ready to be loaded on the ship that would carry her and Sansa away that evening. Arya had just managed to retrieve her sword, needle, and a number of her belongings, when a stable boy she didn't know appeared. Seeking his aid with saddling a horse, Arya told him that her father was Hand of the King and would reward him. His response must have chilled her to the bone. Father's dead, the boy said. He shuffled toward her. It's the queen who will be rewarding me. Come here, girl. As the boy reached out to grab her arm, it says, Everything Sirio Pharrell had ever taught her vanished in a heartbeat. In that instant of sudden terror, the only lesson Aya could remember was the one Jon Snow had given her the very first. She stuck him with the pointy end, driving the blade upward with a wild, hysterical strength. Arya killed the boy. Her first kill was made in an unthinking moment of self-preservation, having just been told that her father was dead and that the queen would pay a reward for her. All of the things she knew about Cersei, Micah, Nymeria, and Lady, must have combined in that instant with her father's warnings of a few weeks previously, we have enemies who mean us ill, to precipitate her need to escape and to survive. Now, knowing nothing more than that she had to escape the Red Keep and somehow find her way out of the city, she resolved to retrace her steps from the day she had discovered the dragon skulls and the exit through the sewers beneath the castle. In the dark, she remembered that long-ago foray into Winterfell's crypts with her brothers and Sansa. Like her siblings, she seems to draw strength from Winterfell. Many months in the future, Sansa would think, I am stronger within the walls of Winterfell, and in that moment, for Arya, it seemed like the very idea of her home gave her strength. It says, the memory made Arya smile, and after that the darkness held no more terrors for her. The stable boy was dead, she'd killed him, and if he jumped out at her, she'd kill him again. She was going home. Everything would be better once she was home again safe behind Winterfell's grey granite walls. Here at the end of the first phase of her story arc, and at the end of her penultimate chapter of A Game of Thrones, we get a statement of purpose that will, in spite of numerous detours, define the direction of her arc for the rest of the novels. She was going home. Her final pages of A Game of Thrones pick up her story after many weeks of existing in the streets and alleys of King's Landing. In this time, far longer than people might realize, she was unable to leave the city due to the gates and keys being watched constantly by Lannister henchmen. It says all she wanted was to go home, but leaving King's Landing was not so easy as she had hoped. The chapter also relates how Arya had spent her days circling the city to check each of the seven gates in turn. She could leave through none of them and the waterfront was also watched. Visiting the wharf, she saw that the ship that had been meant to give her passage north was still in its berth, guarded by three men in grey cloaks. But as she approached them, Sirio's lessons came back to her and she looked more closely. 
These were not men she knew, and she was alert enough to realise that they were Lannisters in disguise, waiting for her to show herself there. Taking advantage of her natural appearance and recent circumstances that made her look less like the daughter of a great lord than ever, she passed herself off as a boy and retreated into the city where the bells of the great sept of Baelor were ringing, summoning the populace to the public square there. At some point during those weeks, she must have learned that her father wasn't dead, as the stable boy had declared, for the chapter speaks of Robert's death and rumors that had surrounding it, including that her father had somehow been involved. But he was clearly not a free man, and as she followed the flow of people towards the hill of Visenya, she heard the excited chatter that the hand was being brought to the sept. Arriving, she had a glimpse of him standing outside the door of the Sept and of Sansa behind him, along with the High Septon, Joffrey, Cersei, and many others. She witnessed Ned forced to make his spurious confession and Sansa listening, looking happy for reasons Arya couldn't understand. And then she heard Joffrey deny the clemency that had been arranged in exchange for the confession and call for her father's head. Her headlong rush through the crowd with needle bed in her hand is typical of Aya, much as Sansa's pleading in court for mercy for her father, meant to be a shield to save him, is typical of her. All those weeks ago her father had called them the sun and the moon, here they are the sword and the shield, each trying to save him through very different means. By sheer luck, as she charged through the press of people, Arya encountered the one person in the city who was possessed of loyalty to House Stark and was able to help her. Yorin of the Night's Watch, who had brought word of her mother's actions to Ned, had been weeks in the capital, gathering recruits and supplies to bring on the long journey back north. Recognizing her, and instantly falling back on his initial mistake with regard to her identity— he prevented her from seeing the moment when her father's head was removed from his shoulders and spoke to her fiercely until she remembered who he was. Know me now, do you? There's a bright boy. You'll be coming with me, and you'll be keeping your mouth shut. And so Arya was rescued, from King's Landing at least, and her hopes of returning to Winterfell revived. She would travel north with Euron, posing as a young recruit for the Watch. Crossing the Threshold is a literary device that moves a character arc from its first to its second act, a move that, in the case of the classic hero's journey, takes the hero from the familiar into the unknown, armed with the skills learned from early mentors and often accompanied by a psychopomp of sorts. A psychopomp is a character that acts as a guide to another character entering the underworld, which is what the unknown part of the journey is often represented as. A liminal character, who exists between one reality and another, the psychopomp's sole purpose is to facilitate the passage. As we'll see, Yorin of the Night's Watch, who takes no part in the quarrels of the Lords of the Realm, will act in this capacity for Arya, ushering her from the cold reality of King's Landing into what would become Arya's unreal journey through the Riverlands, ever seeking a return to her home and family. Although we know George hardly follows the stages of the hero's journey rigorously, 
This next stage of the hero's journey is often called In the Belly of the Beast, and there is probably no better way to characterise Arya's months in the Riverlands. And so, when we come back, we'll journey up the King's Road with Arya and Euron ostensibly heading north towards home and safety, but in reality, getting further from both by the day. At Winterfell, they had called her Arya Horseface, and she thought nothing could be worse, but that was before the orphan boy Lommy Greenhands had named her Lumpyhead. Her head felt lumpy when she touched it. When Yorin had dragged her into that alley, she thought he meant to kill her, but the sour old man had only held her tight, sawing through her mats and tangles with his dagger. She remembered how the breeze sent the fistfuls of dirty brown hair skittering across the paving stones toward the sept where her father had died. I'm taking men and boys from the city, Yorin growled when the sharp steel scraped at her head. Now you hold still, boy. By the time he had finished, her scalp was nothing but tufts and stubble. Afterward, he told her that from there to Winterfell, she'd be Ari, the orphan boy. Previously, we've discussed Arya's identity crisis within her family, feeling like an outsider, failing at gender-approved pursuits, and longing to step outside the socially imposed reality of her sex. We've also noted how Catelyn would recall that visitors to Winterfell would oft mistake her for a stable boy, and seen numerous occasions in King's Landing, notably on the day of her cat-catching escapade, when everyone from Tommen to Marcella and their scepter to various guardsmen, urine of the Night's Watch, and encountered residents of the city mistook her for a boy. Now, in a clash of kings, unmoored from her family and from the social hierarchy that had cradled her for her entire young life, Aya's identity crisis intensified. For the entire book, she essentially ceased to be Aya Stark externally, and for more than half of her page time, pretty much all of the chapters we'll cover in this episode, she became Ari the Orphan Boy. After her father's death, Arya rode out of the city with Yorin and his recruits, retracing in reverse the route she had travelled with her father and sister a relatively few months earlier. She was bound for Winterfell, for home and family and safety, and it says, Arya never looked back. She wished the rush would rise and wash the whole city away, Flea Bottom and the Red Keep and the Great Sept and everything, and everyone, too, especially Prince Joffrey and his mother. But she knew it wouldn't, and anyhow, Sansa was still in the city and would wash away, too. When she remembered that, Arya decided to wish for Winterfell instead. While Arya seems to have outwardly forgotten her sister as she shrugs off King's Landing and her former identity, she did think of Sansa on a number of occasions, including this one, and again later when Euron stopped at an inn whose keeper's younger brother had joined the Night's Watch. The conversation reminded Arya of her own family. It says it made us sad to think of Sansa and her father. We can infer that Aya avoided thinking about the life she had left behind primarily as a matter of self-preservation. But she couldn't keep her family out of her dreams. On the day she fought with her fellow recruits, Lommy and Hot Pie, after they had bullied her, it says she had cried in her sleep the night before, dreaming of her father. 
Come morning, she'd woken red-eyed and dry, and could not have shed another tear if her life had hung on it. When she lashed out at Lamy and Hot Pie for their bullying, Yorin took her aside for some visible discipline and a surreptitious chat. His chiding, that no matter how much she spent her fury on them, the two young recruits weren't the ones responsible for her father's death, was highly reminiscent of Donald Noy's lesson to Jon Snow at Castle Black about his own confrontations with bullies. It turns out there are lessons to be learned from all sorts of people, and both Arya and Jon actually seem to have the knack for doing so once their eyes are opened and they learn to see beyond their privilege. But Euron also, on that occasion, as on so many others, brutally emphasized to Arya that she was now a boy as far as the world was concerned. In his fierce insistence about this, we see that gender fluidity may now be as much of a shield to Arya as a lady's courtesy is to her sister Sansa back in King's Landing. In A Game of Thrones, we saw both sisters attempt to use their innate talents to save Ned, Sansa by pleading for clemency and Arya by charging into the crowd with her sword drawn. In A Clash of Kings, they are now both surviving on their own, capitalizing on their unique strengths in much the same manner. In addition to discipline, Euron took that occasion to explain something to Arya. His presence outside of Baelor's sept on the day her father was executed. He told her, It wasn't supposed to happen like it did. I was set to leave, wagons bought and loaded, and a man comes with a boy for me, and a purse of coin, and a message. Never mind who it's from. Lord Eddard's to take the black, he says to me. Wait, he'll be going with you. Why'd you think I was there? Only something went queer. The man was Varys, and the boy was Gendry, who the reader had met in a Ned point of view chapter in A Game of Thrones and knows to be Robert Baratheon's bastard son. But Arya herself never thought to question who the boy was or why he was being sent away due to her focus on the person who was responsible for things going sideways. Arya, having witnessed the scene herself, knew that it was Joffrey and told Yorin, someone should kill him. Yorin agreed, and his agreement, in hindsight, reads like a prophecy of sorts. Someone will, but it won't be me, nor you neither. And so, even as she processed her losses and learned to hide her own identity deep inside herself, she was memorising the identities of those responsible for her predicament. That night, observing the red comet in the sky overhead, she tried to see the red sword Gendry claimed it looked like. But a red sword only made her think of her father's sword ice, and what it might have looked like after Sir Illyn had cut off his head. On the one hand, this is Aya identifying one more person she holds responsible for her father's death. But thinking of Ned clearly also provoked some amount of nostalgia. For then it says, When at last she slept, she dreamed of home. The King's Road wound its way past Winterfell on its way to the Wall, and Euron had promised he'd leave her there with no one any wiser about who she'd been. She yearned to see her mother again, and Rob and Bran and Rickon, but it was Jon Snow she thought of most. She wished somehow they could come to the wall before Winterfell, so Jon might muss up her hair and call her little sister. She'd tell him, I missed you, and he'd say it too at the very same moment, the way they always used to say things together. She would have liked that. She would have liked that better than anything. The origins of nostalgia as a literary device 
can be traced to Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. In the aftermath of the Trojan War, the Greek hero Odysseus yearned to return to his home in Ithaca. This was nostos, the Greek term for homecoming. But of course, Odysseus's journey wouldn't be straightforward. His obstacles ranged from the forgetfulness that came in the land of the Lotus Eaters to the perils of Polyphemus the Cyclops, Circe the Enchantress, the sea monsters Scylla and Charybdis, and much, much more. Odysseus suffered greatly during his long journey, and the Greek word for suffering is algos. So nostos plus algos gives us nostalgia, literally the pain of an unfilled yearning for home. Like Odysseus, Arya's journey home is destined to be less than straightforward, full of danger, and constantly tinged by nostalgia. And if at points her journey has some other similarities with that of Odysseus, we'll be sure to comment, though that will likely be in future installments. One thing we do want to comment on now is something that's constantly noted in the Riverlands as Arya makes her slow way northwards, the presence of wolves in the area. In the same inn where Arya was prompted to remember her father and Sansa, she overheard patrons talking about the state of affairs in the Riverlands. The news that Rob had marched to war was coupled with the rumour that he, quote, rise to battle on a wolf, which prompted a different patron to mention a rumour about wolves in the region. There's this great pack, hundreds of them, man-killers. The one that leads them is a she-wolf, a bitch from the seventh hell. Aya's thoughts naturally turned to Nymeria, wondering if her erstwhile pet could be this she-wolf, and if Nymeria would remember her. She probably wouldn't even know me now, or if she did, she'd hate me, is typical of many of Aya's thoughts from this time, from worrying that Yorin would abandon her if he knew about the stable boy in King's Landing, to later thinking that her mother might not want her due to the way she looked and things she'd done, Aya experiencing self-loathing and feelings of unworthiness simply due to the circumstances that life had thrust her into as a nine-year-old child is simply heartbreaking. But the significance of wolves in the Riverlands didn't end there. Sometime later, going off into the woods at night to relieve herself, as she always did to hide her true sex, She was discovered by a group of wolves, at least six, judging by the eyes she counted in the moonlight. It says, One of them came padding out from under the trees. He stared at her and bared his teeth, and all she could think was how stupid she'd been and how Hot Pie would gloat when they found her half-eaten body the next morning. But the wolf turned and raced back into the darkness, and quick as that, the eyes were gone. Aya didn't yet understand her connection with the wolf pack terrorising the area, and ran off assuming she'd had a remarkably fortunate escape. Of course she had, but that was also an early hint that there is something fantastical about the Riverlands wolf pack. Later, she would have what was likely one of her first wolf dreams, or at least the first to be noted in her POV. On a night when Neuron's group was sheltering in a holdfast near the god's eye for safety, primarily from the two-legged wolves who were also roaming the area, it says she must have slept, though she never remembered closing her eyes. She dreamed a wolf was howling, and the sound was so terrible that it woke her at once. Waking, she tried to convince her companions that something was wrong, 
Mommy, always combative with her, sneered, Ari has wolves in his head, never guessing how close to the truth he was. The others were content to let the wolves be outside their walls, but Arya unconsciously knew that her dream was a warning, insisting, It was a wolf! Something's wrong! Someone's coming! Get up! The reader knows that Arya's instinct was correct, and furthermore, that this warning was in all likelihood intentional. Her connection with Nymeria, far from being broken by the events at the Trident in A Game of Thrones, remained intact, and the warning of danger coming was a message driven by the survival instinct of the wolf outside the walls. And we'll get back to what happened there at the Holdfast shortly. Aya in this period retained her connection to House Stark and a hopeful desire to return home, these things driving her journey northwards. However, events would soon begin to occur which would drive her progress off course and ultimately strip her of her subterfuge as Ari the Orphan Boy, as well as of many things that made her Aya of House Stark, her courage, her extroverted nature, driven by natural curiosity, and most tragically, her youthful innocence. The loss of a parent and of a home is one thing. The loss of self is quite another. And as the political conflict around her becomes more obvious and more dangerous, we'll see Aya continue to change, learning many striking and transformative lessons, each one taking her seemingly farther away from Aya Stark of Winterfell. By the time they marched, Arya knew she was no water dancer. Sirio Pharrell would never have let them knock him down and take his sword away, nor stood by when they killed Lamy Greenhands. Sirio would never have sat silent in that storehouse, nor shuffled along meekly among the other captives. The direwolf was the sigil of the Starks, but Arya felt more a lamb surrounded by a herd of other sheep. She hated the villagers for their sheepishness almost as much as she hated herself. As Aya and Yorin and the rest made their slow way north, they began encountering a steady stream of refugees flowing south. The conflict in the Riverlands, begun while Ned was still alive and serving as Robert's hand, had only increased since Ned's arrest and subsequent death. Far from settling matters and sending out men under the command of Lord Beric Dondarrion to bring justice to Gregor Clegane, the efforts of Lord Beric's men, while effective in some ways, had proved to be as much annoyance as anything, driving the mountain that rides to ever greater cruelties in his efforts to find and destroy Beric and his followers. Of course, the mountain didn't need a personal vendetta to wreak havoc in the Riverlands. Near the end of A Game of Thrones, at a war council after the battles at the Green Fork and Whispering Wood, with his son Jaime now a captive of the Starks and Tullys, Tywin Lannister announced his intention of marching to Harrenhal and ordered, Unleash Sir Gregor and send him before us with his reavers. Send forth Vargo Hote and his freeriders as well, and Sir Amory Lorch. Each is to have three hundred horse. Tell them I want to see the Riverlands afire from the God's Eye to the Red Fork. It was into that very area that Aya was travelling. The further they went, the more obvious it became that the travellers they met heading in the opposite direction were doing so for a very good reason. The sheer volume of those travellers grew greater by the day. 
It says, They walk south towards the city, towards King's Landing, and only one in a hundred sped so much as a word for Euron and his charges, travelling north. She wondered why no one else was going the same way as them. For the reader, when taken as a whole with parallel chapters set in or containing news from the Riverlands, the mounting sense of tension is palpable. Yorin probably felt it as well, but in an effort to shield his charges from greater harm, he tried for many days to maintain the traditional neutrality of the Watch. The Night's Watch takes no part. But the ever-increasing numbers of freshly dug graves and burnt-out villages added to the feeling of dread. Danger was ever-present, and before too long it would become obvious that Yorin couldn't maintain his neutrality. There was someone in his group that was so sought after by Queen Cersei that she took the unusual step of sending gold cloaks up the King's Road to retrieve them. Yeah, much to Arya's surprise, when the gold cloaks finally caught up with them, it was Gendry they were seeking, not her. She very nearly revealed her own identity when she attempted to turn herself in rather than see her friends get hurt for her. But not only was her gesture in vain, it revealed how thin her disguise actually was. Here's what happened when she revealed herself, needle in hand. The officer looked her up and down. Put the blade away, little girl. No one wants to hurt you. I'm not a girl, she yelled, furious. What was wrong with them? They rode all this way for her, and here she was, and they were just smiling at her. I'm the one you want. The mystery of why Cersei would want Gendry would never be solved for Arya on page. But if characters in story remain oblivious, the reader knows that Cersei is trying to rid the world of her late husband's bastard children. Nonetheless, after the encounter with the gold cloaks, and without any explanation to Gendry as to why soldiers might be seeking Ari as well as him, Yorin gave the pair the fastest horses to ride, telling them, You ride them to coursers. First sight of a gold cloak, make for the wall like a dragon's on your tail. The rest of us don't mean spit to them. Arya standing up to the gold cloaks happened just after she had another dangerous run-in, this one with one of the recruits Euron was bringing north. Of all the men and boys he had rounded up in the city, mostly petty criminals and people seeking to escape justice for past crimes, the three he had taken from the black cells appeared to be the most dangerous and were being transported by wagon in shackles. The three with Jacques and Hagar, a Larathi whose reason for being in the Black Cells is utterly unknown, and two Westerosi natives, a noseless man called Rorj, and his nameless companion, more beast than man, who Jacken had dubbed Biter due to his filed teeth and bestial nature. Having approached the wagon the chained recruits were being transported in, Arya found herself on the receiving end of Biter's aggression and responded by whacking him between the eyes with her practice sword, prompting Jack and Hagar to remark, A boy has more courage than sense. While speaking with Jacken, Arya noticed that his pattern of speech was similar to Sirio's, and she proceeded to think of Sirio several times over the ensuing scenes. She had clearly not forgotten his many lessons, some of which had become mantras that she used to get herself through the complex situations she was continually finding herself in. But we hadn't seen specific memories come to the fore until this time. 
and it was actually thinking of Sirio, who she assumes must have died at the hands of Sir Merrin Trant, that prompted her to reveal herself to the gold cloaks looking for Gendry. It says she was so tired of running. She'd run when Sir Merrin came for her, and again when they killed her father. If she was a real water dancer, she would go out there with needle and kill them all and never run from anyone again. Arya wouldn't let them die for her like Sirio. She wouldn't. Shoving through the hedge with needle in hand, she slid into a water dancer's stance. Fortunately for Arya, the soldiers were seeking a 15-year-old Smith's apprentice boy and not a little girl posing as a boy. And as there were only six of them, they had little recourse in the face of Euron's refusal. But the gold cloaks weren't the only hunters in the field. We mentioned Tywin Lannister's orders to send forth reavers from his army to wreak havoc on the Riverlands. The term havoc is ours here, but it fits well. Havoc would be a commander's order to release soldiers from the usual bonds of military discipline to allow pillage and plunder. It's probably best known to modern readers as part of a famous quote from Mark Antony in William Shakespeare's historical play Julius Caesar. Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. It's an order that essentially gives free reign to all sorts of atrocities, and there's a good chance George had it in mind on some level when he fleshed out this storyline. Yeah, and besides Tywin's explicit orders about setting the Riverlands ablaze, we have the repeated use of language comparing Tywin's more brutal units to dogs. Clearly, having Gregor Clegane, whose sigil is three black dogs on a yellow field and who's known as Lord Tywin's mad dog, at the head of one of these contingents makes the literary illusion work very well. But Gregor is explicitly not the only one of Tywin's commanders to be considered a dog, as this quote from Arya's great-uncle Brynden Tully attests. Tywin Lannister is no man's fool. He sits safe behind the walls of Harrenhal, feeding his hosts on our harvest and burning what he does not take. Gregor is not the only dog he's loosed. Sir Amory Lorch is in the field as well, and some sellsword out of Cohor who'd sooner maim a man than kill him. I've seen what they leave behind them. Whole villages put to the torch, women raped and mutilated, butchered children left unburied to draw wolves and wild dogs. It would sicken even the dead. The devastation of the Riverlands caused by Tywin's dogs of war was so widespread, especially in the area around the God's Eye and the Trident, that Euron attempted to find safety by leaving the King's Road. But it was not to be found. Intending to avoid both the Lannister-infested area west of the God's Eye and the now highly dangerous King's Road to the east, Euron decided to make for a town on the south bank of the lake. It says... Near as I recall, there's a town here, the Holdfast Stone, and there's a lordling got his seat there too, just a tower house. They'll have a guard, might be a knight or two. We follow the river north, should be there before dark. They'll have boats, so I mean to sell all we got and hire us one. Gods be good, we'll find a wind and sail across the God's Eye to Harrentown. We can buy new mounts there, or else take shelter at Harrenhal. That's Lady Went's seat, and she's always been a friend of the Watch. As plans go, it seemed to be a sound one, with the downfall being that after so long travelling off the main road, they had no real idea of the goings-on in the region. Yorin didn't know that Harrenhal had fallen to the Lannister army. Arriving at the town on the lakeshore, they found it deserted, and no boats were to be found. 
Contemplating their next move, Yorin decided that they would seek shelter for the night in the abandoned holdfast of the town, which at least had the benefit of being made of stone and stout timbers. But Arya had a bad feeling about staying in the abandoned town. It says, Arya could not keep quiet. We shouldn't stay here, she blurted. The people didn't. They all ran off, even their lord. Arya speaking her mind is a theme we're going to discuss shortly. At the moment, as much as her instincts were correct, it served no purpose. Euron wanted stone walls to protect them, and so the group moved inside the holdfast, in the process identifying a secret tunnel from inside that led out to the lakeshore. This was the night that Aya awoke from a dream of wolves, knowing that someone was coming. It turned out that the someone was Sir Armory Lorch, one of Tywin's dogs, best known in the story for being the one who murdered Rhaegar and Elia's daughter Rhaenys. Aya tried to count the number of horsemen with him and estimated one to two hundred. The reader knows that Tywin had sent him out with three hundred, so even with some losses, the force that came for them in the holdfast was much bigger than they guessed, probably outnumbering Euron's group by as much as ten to one. In spite of Yorin's efforts to convince Sir Amory that he should leave the Night's Watch group in peace due to their historic neutrality in the affairs of the realm, the Reavers set out to, quote, storm the walls and kill them all. This would be Arya's first real experience with the horrors of warfare. She had experienced grief and loss, terror and death in King's Landing, even killed the stable boy in order to escape safely. But this was different. As she joined the other recruits in the defense of the wall, helping to hack, cut, and throw soldiers off who were attempting to climb over, she fell into the chaos of battle and killing, and it says, everything smelled of blood and smoke and iron and piss, but after a time it seemed like that was only one smell. As we'll discuss throughout our analysis, with Aya, George is exploring the idea of the child soldier and that children can be just as involved with war and killing and as dangerous as grown-ups. In a 2013 interview with Charlie Jane Anders of io9, he had this to say about it. The whole thing of the child soldier is a fascinating construct. We have this picture of children as so sweet and innocent. I think some of the recent history in Africa and some of the longer history have shown that under the right circumstances, they can become just as dangerous as men, and in some ways more dangerous. On some level, it's almost a game to them. The scene at the Holdfast is where this began for Arya, and there's a definite mechanistic feel to her actions as she hacks and stabs and men and boys die screaming around her. And we're not sure if she's reacting because she's expected to, if she's acting out of fear or rage or pleasure, or if it's just a kill-or-be-killed moment which she joins in simply because she has no choice. But in the midst of it, Yorin appears in front of her, telling her that the defense was lost and orders her and Gendry to take the younger boys out through the trapdoor in the barn and make their escape. And so they do, though not before Aya tosses an axe to Jack and Hagar, still chained inside his wagon in the now-burning barn. Going back to give him the tool to save himself and his companions from the inferno will have huge implications later in the story, and not just for Aya, as members of the trio will reappear in other arcs in other books. 
For now, Aya and Gendry make their escape with Hot Pie, a wounded Lommy Greenhands, and the little refugee girl they had taken in and started calling Weasel. This small group set out to try to negotiate their way northwards in a region filled with enemy soldiers, not to mention a ferocious wolf pack. But it wouldn't be long before they fell afoul of another of Tywin Lannister's dogs. Unbeknownst to them, the biggest dog of all, Sir Gregor Clegane, was encamped at another village on the lakeshore, not far to the north. After an unknown number of days surviving on their own, Arya and Gendry set out on a reconnaissance mission to determine if the village was a safe haven. On the way, Gendry tried to convince Arya to leave the others behind, telling her, They're slowing us down, and they're going to get us killed. You're the only one of the bunch who's good for anything, even if you are a girl. Try as she might to deny it, Gendry was sure of his conclusion, which must have started growing the day the gold cloaks came and eventually Aya shared her secret with him. Where this might have led, had they the opportunity to continue the discussion, is anyone's guess, because as it happened, Gendry was taken captive by Lannister soldiers not long after. Aya knew by this time that things in the town were far from safe, on approaching the place, she noticed first the strong odour of death, dead man stinks, she thinks, and then saw this. Beside the gently lapping waters of the god's eye, a long gibbet of raw green wood had been thrown up, and things that had once been men dangled there, their feet in chains, while crows pecked at their flesh and flapped from corpse to corpse. Even after being literally confronted by death, when Arya observed Gendry being locked in a storehouse, where there appeared to be other prisoners as well, she attempted to lead Hot Pie on a rescue mission, leaving Weasel and Lamy behind to wait. Unfortunately, two children versus all of Gregor Clegane's men went about as well as could be expected. Arya and Hot Pie were captured, and they were taken back to where they had left Lamy in order that everyone in their group could be properly questioned about Beric Dondarrion, a testament to their captor's obsession with locating the elusive Lightning Lord, whose existence Arya had only been reminded of days before when Sir Amory thought he was holed up at the Holdfast with them. Weasel had run away, but the injured Lamy remained. It's important to note what happens next, as it had a profound effect on Aya. While it was clear that she personally disliked Lommy, Aya did feel a sense of responsibility for him, evidenced by her refusal to leave him behind as Gendry had been urging. One thing to recall is Aya's innate sense of what is or is not fair. Certainly, she would have thought that leaving Lobby behind was unfair, even if she did suspect he would soon die of his wounds. What happened with the mountain's men then was doubly unfair and therefore offensive to Aya's sensibility. Here's the passage. One of the spearmen drifted over to Lobby. Something wrong with your leg, boy? It got hurt. Can you walk? He sounded concerned. No, said Lommy, you got to carry me. Think so. The man lifted his spear casually and drove the point through the boy's soft throat. Lommy never even had time to yield again. He jerked once and that was all. When the man pulled his spear loose, blood sprayed out in a dark fountain. Carry him, he says, he muttered, chuckling. 
It's not mentioned whether Arya protested, though we suspect she did not. By now, she knew exactly into whose hands she had fallen. The hound's brother, quote, a monster from one of old Nan's stories, and the tallest man Arya had ever seen, the mountain that rides, a man with not an ounce of pity or humanity in him, as she would soon learn. Arya's next chapter, the final one we'll be covering in this installment, is the most we see Gregor on page since the hand's tourney in A Game of Thrones, and the vantage point here is much closer and more dangerous. The chapter begins and ends with the word fear. Fear cuts deeper than swords is a serialism that Aya had been using since her days exploring the Red Keep to great effect as a calming mantra. As a captive in the storehouse on the lake shore, however, fear never went away, leaving Aya wounded in a profound, if invisible, way. Catelyn tells Brienne in A Clash of Kings... Aya would say anything that came into her head. While we've seen this to be true, even as recently as her speaking up to the gold cloaks who came for Gendry, learning to be silent began for Aya after the Micah incident on the Trident, when she learned to hide her guilt and grief, and continued in her time with Sirio, where she learned to hold her tongue and use her eyes, and later with Euron, when she learned to be silent to enable her subterfuge. But increasingly, there were occasions when she learned that she must hold her tongue in order to avoid ever more serious consequences. That process is complete when she becomes Gregor's captive on the lakeshore, as it says, The captors permitted no chatter. A broken lip taught Aya to hold her tongue. What happened in the storehouse was the complete breakdown of Arya's inner certainty of who she was and what she was capable of. Learning that sometimes monsters aren't just in the stories is a difficult lesson, to say the least, but when that lesson is accompanied by persistent personal peril as it was for Arya, the result was truly damaging to her sense of self. Having always struggled with her identity, Arya remained Arya of House Stark inside, as she told Gendry just before they were captured. But the storehouse gave her reason to doubt what that meant, as it says, By the time they marched, Arya knew she was no water dancer. Sirio Pharrell would never have let them knock him down and take his sword away, nor stood by when they killed Lamy Greenhands. Sirio would never have sat silent in that storehouse, nor shuffled along meekly among the other captives. The direwolf was the sigil of the Starks, but Arya felt more a lamb, surrounded by a herd of other sheep. She hated the villagers for their sheepishness, almost as much as she hated herself. The eight days spent in the storehouse would lead Arya to Harrenhal, a place she had previously thought of in terms of the stories old Nana told her back at Winterfell, but which she had also once thought might be refuge from danger. It also led to the germination of something that to this point we've merely seen being seeded in her arc. The more wrongs she suffered in her young life, the more names of people deserving retribution she had to remember. And what better way to remember them all than with a list? Back in Winterfell, Arya had prayed with her mother in the Sept and with her father in the Godswood. But there were no gods on the road to Harrenhal, and her names were the only prayer she cared to remember. Regarding her fears, 
Ayah 6 of A Clash of Kings tells us she had thought she had known what it meant to be afraid, but she learned better in that storehouse beside the God's Eye. Eight days she had lingered there before the mountain gave the command to march, and every day she had seen someone die. It also tells us exactly what she lost through the experience. The Lannisters had taken everything father, friends, home, hope, courage. One had taken needle, while another had broken her wooden stick sword over his knee. They had even taken her stupid secret. On the physical level, she lost her weapons of defense, including her secret identity. Exposed as a girl and physically vulnerable, she must have been fearful of many things, but probably most of all of being recognized. On a more profound level, she numbered her emotional losses, father, friends, home, hope, courage. Those last two were a direct result of her captivity, and the inner rage she felt was a very different thing from the outwardly directed fury she had shown after Micah's and her father's deaths. Her identity crisis intensified in ways none could have predicted, and her goals started to align with that change. Whereas previously she had always been focused on returning home to Winterfell and her family, often litanizing her family's names as if she was using their memories to sustain her hope and courage, the loss of both her sense of hope and her courage led to a new purpose supplanting her desire to return home, vengeance. In a real sense, and in spite of everything that came before, this represents her loss of innocence. She will have very different motives going forward. During those days she spent watching the mountain's men torture and kill harmless villagers in the storehouse, it says, Aya watched and listened and polished her hates the way Gendry had once polished his horned helm. Dunzan wore those bull's horns now, and she hated him for it. She hated Poliver for Needle, and she hated old Chiswick, who thought he was funny, and Raph the Sweetling, who'd driven his spear through Lommy's throat. She hated even more. She hated Sir Armory Lorch for Euron, and she hated Sir Merin Trant for Sirio, the Hound for killing the butcher's boy Micah, Sir Illyn and Prince Joffrey, and the Queen for the sake of her father and Fat Tom and Desmond and the rest, and even for Lady Sansa's Wolf. The tickler was almost too scary to hate. At times, she could almost forget he was still with them. When he was not asking questions, he was just another soldier, quieter than most, with a face like a thousand other men. There's so much that can be unpacked in that quote, most significant of all being the nature of Arya's cataloging the horrors she's witnessed. We've known Arya to be keenly observant and curious from the beginning of her arc. With her senses focused on survival and revenge, she developed a way of remembering those who had wronged her that helped her sustain not only herself, but her burning hatreds. Her catalog of wrongs became a list, a list akin to a prayer, it says. Every night, Arya would say their names. Sir Gregor, she'd whisper to her stone pillow. Dunson, Poliver, Chiswick, Raph the Sweetling, the Tickler and the Hound, Sir Amory, Sir Illyn, Sir Merrin, King Joffrey, Queen Cersei. Back in Winterfell, Arya had prayed with her mother in the Sept and with her father in the Godswood, but there were no gods on the road to Harrenhal, and her names were the only prayer she cared to remember. 
At the end of eight days, the surviving captives were marched to Harrenhal. No longer humans with lives and thoughts of their own, they were now simply spoils of war. It says, besides his captives, Sir Gregor was bringing back a dozen pigs, a cage of chickens, a scrawny milk cow, and nine wagons of salt fish. The mountain and his men had horses, but the captives were all afoot, and those too weak to keep up were killed out of hand, along with anyone foolish enough to flee. Those who survived the trip would be expected to serve the Lannisters encamped at Harrenhal. As a girl, Arya might have been sent to the kitchens with her friend Hot Pie, but when she forgot herself long enough to ask to work in the stables instead, her punishment was to be sent to Weiss, a sly and brutal understeward whose abuses would earn him a place of honor on Arya's list. Here's the passage describing Arya's first experience with him, which ends the chapter that had begun with fear cuts deeper than swords. The Lannisters are generous to those as serve them well, an honor none of your sort deserve, but in war a man makes do with what's to hand. Work hard and mind your place, and might be one day you'll rise as high as me. If you think to presume on his lordship's kindness, though, you'll find me waiting after my lord is gone, you see? My nose never lies. I can smell defiance. I can smell pride. I can smell disobedience. I catch a whiff of any such stinks, you'll answer for it. When I sniff you, all I want to smell is fear. And so Aya enters a new phase of her journey, still a captive, but with a new captor and tormentor. Weez is objectively far less terrifying than Gregor, but his ability to directly affect Aya in small ways, withholding food, forcing her to do difficult work with impossible standards, and subjecting her to physical and verbal abuse, would soon make him the primary focus of her rage. So far we've chronicled Arya's journey from sheltered childhood at Winterfell into the hellish war zone of the Riverlands. We've observed her blossoming identity crisis, six different names, gender swapping both for fun and survival, and coming to terms with the privileges of the ruling class as well as the unfair cruelties and distinct lack of privilege suffered by people with the misfortune to be born into that group collectively and dismissively known as small folk. She's lost her family and her very sense of self has been shattered with hope and courage stripped away, leaving in their place only fear and rage. As we mentioned earlier, George can hardly be said to follow the so-called hero's journey template with all his characters, but in Arya's case, these first stages of her arc are clearly in that pattern. She's gone from her starting place, learned skills from a mentor, crossed the threshold into a new reality, and spent some time journeying in the belly of the beast. At the storehouse of the lakeshore, she began the process of transformation, which will lead to the next stage of her arc, characterised by a drive for vengeance whose visible manifestation is her list of names, often referred to as her prayer. In our next instalment, we'll follow along as Arya's journey in the Riverlands continues. Her remaining chapters in A Clash of Kings and throughout A Storm of Swords not only give tremendous insight into her own character development, but offer us a unique lens to observe the conflict that grounds the first three installments of A Song of Ice of Fire. As we noted in the introduction, Arya Stark is the only one of George's characters to have chapters in all five volumes so far. 
To say that her arc is integral to the narrative George is setting forth and its primary themes is beyond an understatement. With so much rich material to draw upon, we have no doubt that the future instalments in this analysis will be full of action, growth, foreshadowing, thematic resonance, and above all, an appreciation for the tragic journey the author is taking this character on. We hope you'll join us again soon for Arya Stark, Part 2. Thanks so much for joining us today for this first episode in our series about Arya Stark. And now it's time to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R. R. Martin for Aria, and thanks to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Heartfelt thanks to AJ, Aegon VI, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Asha Yara, Oakenfist, Brand the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Endel, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Courtney, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Lady Diana Dane, Esme, Liz, Emily the Eerie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gage, Armorer of Castle Greyguard, Sir Gladworth, Sir Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, History of Westeros, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonarion the White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Lomas Nightrider, Survivor of the Yeen Sleepover, Nessie the Questing Beast, Mage Marmot, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, and Matt M. As well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick Oneirik, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, King Ray, first of his name, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Shari, Sheila, Cern, That Shiny Bastard, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Hama Helmuth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Core and Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioEstros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions, including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period.